word. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard, in accordance with the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord, and I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, <clears throat> 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions in the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, son of Messiah, the, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard, I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel, that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. That ends our reading from God's word. We remember today again that Jeremiah organized his writings not based on timeline or chronology as we ordinarily find things in our reading of history and our reading in our modern culture, but instead he organized himself on topics. So that helps us to see why as we transition from chapter 31 to now today, chapter 32, why previously the topic was God's promise, the new covenant, and the everlasting nature of the new covenant. And that the future will be that God will rebuild Jerusalem. And then as we turn the page now to chapter 32, why the topic is suddenly now different. Before Jerusalem was even destroyed, God is telling Jeremiah to buy a field while the army of Babylon is attacking. So there's quite a transition from 31 to 32. I hope that helped you to make that transition. So here we are on the topic that Jeremiah is guiding us in. God, of course, is the one who has sent his people into exile. Yet God is the one who would bring his people back from exile. So this action to purchase this field becomes an object lesson that teaches us about keeping our trust and our faith in God. So the center of the chapter, we'll cover it today in the actions and then Jeremiah's prayer. Secondly, in the second section, in the last section, God's response to Jeremiah's prayer. But it all hinges on this action to purchase this field. The field that faith bought is my title because it indicates to us lessons for our faith. So the main point is this. When we place our faith in God's word, we take actions in faith. First, we cautiously are waiting for confirmation, verses 1 through 8, boldly stepping out in faith, verses 9 to 12, and steadfastly believing for the long haul, verses 13 to 15. So throughout the book of uh, Jeremiah, we have ongoing encounters between Jeremiah 
and his own king, this king Zedekiah. Maybe you remember it from chapter 21. So here the clash this time in chapter 32 begins in verse 1 with another message from the Lord God. But we don't get the message that Jeremiah said just yet. Verse 2 tells us the city's under attack, and the prophet is where? Did you catch it? He's arrested. He's in prison, basically. The city's under attack, and Jeremiah is in prison. Who had arrested the prophet? The king had arrested the prophet. Why? Because he didn't like what he prophesied. What did he prophesy? The city's going down, and you're going to be arrested and brought off to Babylon. You're going to be face-to-face with king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, eye-to-eye and face-to-face. And what happened later, by the way, in history is that the eyes of Zedekiah were torn out. So the last thing he saw was the face of King Nebuchadnezzar. So the prophecy was fulfilled. But he didn't like that. Zedekiah didn't like to hear that from Jeremiah, so he put him in jail. As if to silence him, and then an interesting thing happens. Instead of us hearing Jeremiah deliver God's message, this time, ironically, this king Zedekiah himself speaks the whole message that Jeremiah was giving. The key phrase is in verse 3, if you catch it where the king said, why do you prophesy and say, and you see the quotation marks? So the rest of verses 3, 4, and 5 are the king speaking what Jeremiah had previously prophesied. And what was that? Verse 3, that God will give the city into the hand of the enemy. Verse 4, that the king will become a prisoner of war who will talk with the enemy, as I just said, king to king, face to face, eye to eye. And verse 5, that even if the king put up a, puts up a fight with the army of Israel... The king will lose, the enemy will take them all into exile. So we get to verses 6 and 7, and Jeremiah is pre-warned by God about what was coming to his prison cell. An unexpected visitor with an unexpected request. The future visitor to the prison would be the son of Jeremiah's uncle, which would be Jeremiah's cousin. Cousin Hanamel, we can call him, would ask Jeremiah to buy Hanamel's field. This would be an appalling request. Because the whole city's about to be destroyed. And it's so key for today and then the next two messages. I want to take a moment and try to illustrate, make sure you're all on board with the appalling request. I've made this up to illustrate. Let's say you live in a condo. A condo is something you buy. So you own it, and yet it's part of a larger building. You live in a condo, and it's part of a large building of condos. Sadly, your building starts on fire in the middle of the night. The alarm goes off, you're all woken up, you're standing in the parking lot in your pajamas and your robe, watching the firemen do their best. It becomes clear by the size of the fire the whole building's going to be a total loss. In that context, your neighbor, also in his pajamas and in his night robe, walks up to you and asks, Hey, this is not a joke, he really means this. He says, Hey, you want to buy my condo? That's the appalling nature of the request of Cousin Hanamel. He's coming to the jail to visit Jeremiah when the whole city's under siege, and he's saying, you want to buy my field? But there's more to it because this is an Israelite situation. It's a nation of Israel, and they have rules with regard to the land. The land is central to God and his promises for his people. This land is governed by God's rules. I'll say more about that in a moment. So it illustrates the appalling request of Jeremiah's cousin who's coming over, would there ever be a less sensitive visitor to prison than this cousin of Jeremiah's? The cousin is on his way, God says to Jeremiah. 
He's going to ask you to buy this field that you both know is going to be destroyed. So God gives Jeremiah a heads up. So we get to verse 8. Sure enough, Hanamel shows up in the prison. The prediction came true so far, and we get this phrase, just as the Lord had said. We continue, Hanamel, would he ask Jeremiah this crazy request? Sure enough, Hanamel asked Jeremiah the crazy request. You could put it this way, hey, you want to buy my field? The rest of verse 8 shows how the people of Israel had very careful laws about the land, that God owned all the land of Israel, and he wanted it to stay in the family of God. So whenever a piece of land went up for sale, it was very carefully documented which people had a right to purchase the land, which people had an obligation to purchase the land, and all of it was overseen at a certain juncture. It would all revert back to the initial family owners anyway. Basically, Jeremiah was technically and legally obligated to buy this property. He was related, you see, to his cousin Anamel, Hanamel, and in the family that was supposed to be kept, he was the next person in line to buy the property. You can look that all up in Leviticus 25.25. I've summarized it for you. Of course, the fact that this request came during a time of war made it kind of unethical for his cousin to basically force Jeremiah to fulfill that duty and to buy that field on that day. I'll just go over that for a moment. It was unethical for a number of obvious reasons. It's what we would call a bad real estate deal. Number one, Jeremiah's in prison with little prospect of being released to enjoy the land. For all Jeremiah knew, he might not even live to see the land once. Second reason, that field over in Anathoth, which is, by the way, the area where Jeremiah's from and grew up, was currently being trampled by occupying forces of the enemy, so any vineyards, fruit trees, farm crops were being currently ruined and burned to the ground by the enemy. That's another reason it's a bad business deal. And the third reason it's a bad business deal is the prospect for the whole city and all the surrounding villages is imminent, utter destruction, followed by exile for at least two generations, we say 70 years. So, uncouth cousin, cousin Hanamel, wanted Jeremiah to buy the field under these conditions? We actually could say more accurately, God wanted Jeremiah to buy the field under these conditions. And now it's a head-scratcher. Like, why would God want Jeremiah? What's the purpose in God asking Jeremiah to go along with an unscrupulous business deal and buy this land? Our verses, up to this point, have not revealed that yet. But we know that God wanted Jeremiah to purchase the field. We have that confirmation twice in verse 8. In the middle of verse 8, in accordance with the word of the Lord, Hanamel had come. And again at the end of verse 8, after cousin Hanamel showed up as predicted and asked the question as predicted, you want to buy my field? Then Jeremiah wrote at the end of verse 8, then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Because God had pre-warned Jeremiah, and then the prediction came true, Jeremiah had effectively waited for confirmation and received said confirmation. This was the required test for the validity of predictions. The prediction has to come true in order to believe that prophet of God. So he's applying this in the case of God directly. The prediction had to come true in order for him to believe the word of God from God himself. Cousin came. Cousin posed awful question. Instruction confirmed. So Jeremiah is cautious. Right up until this moment of confirmation, I'm not sure I'm going to enter into this bad business deal. I'm going to wait for confirmation. And after the moment of confirmation, 
Jeremiah is now ready to take any crazy step that God asks him to take because he's God. I just need to know for sure that it was God, know for sure that God's asking me to do it. Why? Because Jeremiah had faith in God and he had a faith that was intellectual. He had a faith that was real. He had a faith that insisted upon confirmation and he got that confirmation. So keep that in mind for later as I apply it to us. We're moving on to our second point, boldly stepping out in faith. Verse 9, we find that this same Jeremiah has now completed his needed confirmation that we've just covered. So Jeremiah's faith is now guiding him to boldly step out in that direction. He bought the field. It's still a really bad business deal the way humans look at it. It's still the same bad deal. Humanly speaking, looking only from the perspective of earth, but God told him to do it anyway. Not the first crazy thing we've seen in the Bible, right? Next, we get all the banking and legal paperwork about the day of closing. I was hoping you weren't falling asleep as I was reading those verses. I hope I'm not falling asleep, but that I wasn't losing your interest. The currency used was silver, the amount 17 shekels. Verse 10, the documents were signed, including witnesses and proof of funding. Verse 11, the documents contained the terms and conditions of the sale were written into the deed or agreement of sale. In verse 12, the documents were given to the proper official, a scribe, like today we would say a banker or a real estate lawyer, with the seller and the buyer both present to sign what we would call that the day of closing, wouldn't we? They even had the court officials testify to the purchase. The documents were properly certified and sealed. By the way, they had one open document. The other one was sealed. They rolled it up and sealed it, and you only open that if you have to go to court to dispute the open document. It's all taken care of, proper rules and everything. Why all these details? Something going on here. It's a land deal that's not simply economic or legal. This is a land deal by a prophet of God, specifically instructed by God, in a time of war, just prior to the time of exile, under the promises of return, under the new dispatch of the new covenant. It has large significance theologically or spiritually. Here's the key question of faith that unlocks it for us. Will there be life after the Babylon attacks? In other words, Will there be life after exile? If all the prophecies that Jeremiah has been saying for all this time come true, we're heading to Babylon, and for 70 years our families will all be there, and then whoever is coming back will come back after that. Is there actually anything worth coming back for? Will there be life after exile? Strictly spiritually, we could ask it this way. Is there life after death with this God? In the light of the New Covenant, in chapter 31, the answer is yes. And so the listing of all the details, the listing of all the documents of this real estate deal showed that Jeremiah's faith caused him to take proper care of all the detailed steps because he understood how much is at stake. How do I illustrate this to you? You remember at Christmas time when we read the story in the Gospel of Matthew? If you imagine yourself reading that for the first time, you concern yourself with the details of the safety of the baby Jesus. Is he going to make it? Because we sort of need Jesus, don't we? Our salvation is hinging on Jesus surviving all that happens to him as an infant. Our, Our baby Jesus is key to the story. And in the same way, when the exiles, often the exile, would read the book of Jeremiah, would read the prophecy of Jeremiah 32 about this land deal, 
Wouldn't they concern themselves with the propriety and legality of the sale because their future home after this is all finally over would be dependent on Jeremiah taking care of it the proper way and when we get there, we need to be able to prove that this is our property. A field of Jeremiah represents all the land of Israel belonging to all of God's people. If it's true in this case, it's true in all the cases. The land is home. The land represents salvation. The land represents God being true to his new covenant promise. In the future, he's going to provide a home for us. They needed this field. Don't mess it up on a technicality, Jeremiah. We know you're a prophet, not a real estate lawyer, so make sure you have the proper things in place. And Jeremiah did not mess it up, and he's writing to them exactly what he did. In fact, this very bad business deal was very carefully overseen and reported because it's not a bad spiritual deal. It's probably the worst real estate deal you can imagine, but it's a spiritual deal we call the New Covenant. The lesson we gain from observing Jeremiah is that he did not act on an impulse to buy this field. He didn't make a rash decision. He did not fall for some trick. He didn't make a mistake to buy the field or finish the required steps. He did everything that a man of God and a man of faith would do. He kept a humble openness to whatever the Lord God might have in mind for him to say, might have in mind for him to do, might have in mind for him to purchase. That's why Jeremiah did not respond to his cousin out of some personal hurt or anger, perhaps yelling at his cousin Hanamel as you and I might do, saying, how dare you rip me off with a bad land deal when I'm already in prison? He said none of that. No, Jeremiah had learned by faith to recognize the hand of God in his life from whatever source and the hand of God collectively on all of God's people as they collectively head to exile, collectively return. This real estate deal was actually a golden opportunity. It's genius because it's the chance that prophet Jeremiah finally needed to show all of his listeners, Jeremiah is serious about this coming exile. It's really coming, guys. And he's also serious about the future return from exile. He's serious about God being both a God of judgment and a God who follows that with mercy. The land deal shows God as a God of mercy. Who would buy a piece of land if you're never going to come back to it? This buying of the field was an object lesson of believing in the mercy of God in the future, which we have any hope of life at all. Taking care of the details regarding the field that faith bought is as important to us as Noah building a boat that actually would not sink. All of God's promises are hinged on it. The ark points us to God's faithfulness as it floats. The field points us to God's faithfulness as the the ownership is retained and provable. Jeremiah, when he purchased this field, was communicating to his audience by action that Jeremiah believed with all of his heart and all of his money, it might have been his last 17 shekels, that God will bring his people back to their own land. There's life after Babylon. Babylon. There's life after death. So we get to our third point, steadfastly believing for the long haul. Verse 13, the real estate scribe or or real estate lawyer named Baruch, Jeremiah turned in verse 13 and in verse 14, Jeremiah told him what the Lord God had said. Take these deeds, both this sealed deed and purchase and this open deed and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. Why? Only after the whole process of sale, 
Only after the purchase of the field was completed, only then did Jeremiah declare what the Lord God had said. Verse 15. We see the whole point of Jeremiah buying the field in verse 15. It makes the, the point that normal life will be resumed after the exile. The ownership of one field suggests the possession of the whole land. Here it is, verse 15. For, thus says the Lord, God, Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Against the background of the attacks. Against the background of the likely loss of everything. The point is made even stronger, isn't it? Beautiful. The field which Jeremiah just purchased will be lost. And it will be brought back again. Houses and fields and vineyards are all the elements of the economy. Places to live, places to work, places to celebrate. Isn't that about sum it up? All these items will be present again after the exile. Home will once again have a house. Home will once again have a field. Home will once again have a vineyard, a place to have times of celebration. All the things that were stopped by the Babylonian invasion beyond this will be started up again 70 years later. Once again, the people will have money. They'll have to buy and jobs to earn and rebuild. The land will be born again. Life after death. It will be given new life from above, which shows new life from above for God's people. Where the land goes, the people go. Community will start to function again. When all of that happens, Jeremiah's decision to buy this field will no longer be seen as a quasi-foolish decision. Jeremiah has been obedient to God in faith and has secured a place, and Jeremiah will be abundantly vindicated. Jeremiah's family will be able to reclaim the land because the records will have been carefully preserved. The word from God is what sustained Jeremiah during a rip-off real estate deal. The land was lost because of sin, of course. What about that sin? What would it take for God to reverse the exile and bring his sinning people home? God must take care of that sin. Someone has to guarantee a price, a piece of land after the exile. Someone has to place much value on that field where the sins are covered. How can that happen? Here's how it happened. Fast forward. Judas did to Jesus what cousin Hanamel did to Jeremiah. It was a ripoff to pay 17 shekels of silver for the field where Jeremiah and the exiles would anchor their faith for 70 years in exile. But how about the ripoff of Judas? Judas went to the chief priests and the elders and basically said, hey, you want to buy my rabbi? I'll sell him to you. I'll tell you exactly where he is. How much will you give me? Ah, 30 shekels. Deal. He made a deal. It turned into a land deal because he thought better of it. He changed his mind. We're told in Matthew 27, 3 through 10, that that Judas changed his mind. He came back to the chief priests and scribes, and he wanted to give the 30 shekels back, and they said, we don't want that. That's blood money. He threw it anyway, didn't he? And what did they do with the coins? They bought a field, and they used it for the dead. They did for 30 shekels of silver buy, and Judas sold his savior. They would not take the shekels back, and they used it to buy the field of death. Judas did to Jesus what cousin Hanamel had done to Jeremiah. Judas received shekels of silver to betray Jesus, not believing in him. Meanwhile, Jeremiah paid shekels of silver that bought a field where Jeremiah could continue to believe in the coming Messiah. 
the only hope for the sinning exiles to be brought home one day. The silver of Jeremiah bought a field where he could anchor his faith and his life. The silver of Judas ended up buying a field where he would lose his faith and lose his life. The Bible asks us, which are you? Jeremiah or Judas? Buying the field of hope by trusting in God's mercy after his judgment? Selling out Jesus? Or or selling out Jesus, having the rejected money buy a field of blood, a place of burial? A field of faith and life? Or a field of mistrust and death? Those are the choices. This is what the text is asking us. Which field for you? Jeremiah spent 17 shekels of silver that were perhaps never better spent. Faith is seen in this action. Like Hebrews 11.1 defines faith for us. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So we have three applications to us from our study today. Number one, believe that God can restore what was lost. Believe that God can restore what was lost. He can redeem Revelation 21.5, He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. The field, the exiles, the city of Jerusalem, the world in sin, you, your relationships. Believe in God's redeeming abilities while you're in exile here. What's been lost in your life? What's been lost in our country these last years? Where is God in the middle of loss and declining culture? Believe that he can restore it. Our God is the same as he was in the days of Jeremiah. During a time of national calamity and spiritual decline, Jeremiah expended his resources making a statement about God's intention to redeem. And Jesus, because of spiritual decline ever since Adam, in the garden and was kicked out, expended his resources of himself and made a statement about God redeeming and actually restoring God has fulfilled his, rest- his promises for exile and return. He sent his own son for cleansing us from our sin and restoration through Jesus' death and resurrection. Where is God? Where is God in your loss? Where is God in our loss? God is upholding the world. And he's revealing himself in his word, the scriptures. He's building his church. And in Jeremiah's day, defeat of the city was on everyone's mind. But Jeremiah bought that field during the time of defeat, during the time of attack in order to show its right to believe that one day God's grace will cause the land to be bought and sold again by God's people. What's on everyone's mind today? How can our faith point people to Christ and the victory of his kingdom and his church? God called Jeremiah to redeem the land and help his cousin, help his family. He's the role of family redeemer. He points ahead to the Lord Jesus Christ, the only redeemer for all of God's people. Our elder brother, and the Son of God. What belief in God's redemption is needed for you, for your family members, for those in the family of God, the church? What trust must we show in what God has said about us, about our sin, about his church, about salvation and marriage and family and evangelism, about showing compassion and stewardship and generosity? We took all of our definitions from God. We believe that God can restore what was lost. Secondly, let your decisions be informed by God's word, not by your own impulses. Let your decisions be informed by God's word, not by your own impulses. This is where many Christians go wrong, of course. They don't confirm in the Bible what they suddenly believe that they should do. They get an idea, and then they live recklessly and irrationally. But the man of faith, the woman of faith, is cautious. The man or woman of faith knows that life is difficult and complicated, 
And so they should work hard to figure it out and compare their decisions with Scripture. For example, do you believe that Christians should be free of trouble? If you believe that, you might give yourself permission to walk away from a difficult or sticky situation when God says, hang in there. What does the Bible say about troubles? John 16, 33, in this world you will have tribulation. Take heart, I've overcome the world. John 16, 33, God can take the troubles we're facing and turn them into blessings. Take the exile, for example. God turned it into a blessing. Take the cross of Jesus. God turned it into the biggest blessing. So let's review your, your outlook on the world, your faith, your decision-making. Is it informed from Scripture? Should we buy this field, as it were? Should we buy this house? Should we marry this person? Should we take a different job? Should we have children, adopt children? Should we move closer to the grandchildren? Our decisions. Jeremiah was up against a decision. There's something helpful that we're learning from his decision-making process. Confirmation. He did not let his own sense of a business deal stop him from doing what God asked him to do. Nor would he do what God said not to do. The key is Jeremiah knew it was the word of the Lord. Same for Jesus. Jesus knew that God the Father was sending him to the cross, so he stayed the course no matter how difficult. And how did Jeremiah come to believe that God was calling him to do this? How did Jesus come to believe that God was calling him to do this? It was the word of the Lord that sheds light on all of our decisions. They're informed by God through his word. Your Bible's not going to tell you whether to buy that house, marry that person, take that job, adopt that child. Not that specific, of course. But it has principles. It has wisdom. And God also has his church, his people. So you have friends who are Christians. You have leaders and pastors and elders and deacons to help us through life. So the the point I think that we can draw easily from this chapter is let our decisions be informed by God's word, not our impulses. And third and last, invest in God's kingdom. Redemption costs something. Redemption costs, costs Jeremiah his 17 shekels to buy the field to illustrate the coming redemption. Redemption, of course, in the grand sense, costs the Lord Jesus' life to bring us back from the destruction of sin. That's the cost. So what does it look like for the Christian today? Redemption costs something. The full redemption, the grand redemption of the salvation of our souls is already paid, and yet we follow Christ and we build his kingdom. And so he calls us to similarly buy the field, as it were, to make investments. Those who have something are called to give to benefit those who do not have something. It's amazing what can be redeemed by the simple acts of talents that the Lord has given to us. Jeremiah took action with the opportunity that God sent his way, and it did not look like a good deal. But Jeremiah's purchase symbolized faith that God would redeem. So we invest. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Doesn't look like a good investment while we're still sinners. And yet he died for us. The cross becomes the symbol that God did redeem his people. How does that apply to the Christian today then? Both Jeremiah and Jesus are showing us the pathway of investing in God's kingdom. What are our talents to give? Our time, our abilities, our money, serving the church, writing a missionary, training a new believer, giving up nights 
twice per month to join a Bible study, participating in disaster relief, sponsoring a child to go to Christian camps such as snow camp or boardwalk chapel, cuddling a baby, we need help in the nursery. Isn't that serving God? Doing something for homeless such as participating in chapel services at the rescue mission, serving meals there, making donations, donating to Christian schools or seminaries. All kinds of ways that we invest in God's kingdom, all because the Lord Jesus has redeemed us. We want to demonstrate to the world that we're willing to also invest and pay what it costs for the redemption to spread. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in